Remember this portion of the story of God. It is, it is written in the book that we love from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he, and he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus and Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some woman among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. In breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he, recognized, how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. I really like the road to Emmaus story. <clears throat> I think I identify with it more than a lot of stories. I, I know that in my experience as a Christian, I have felt that sense of that warming of the heart that comes when Christian brothers and sisters are together and they're having a, a, a they just, we just really connect over a word from scripture that we've worked hard to study. I used to have a, I've had off and on in the 15 years I've been here, a, um, a group of people that would meet with me uh, at their request. Uh, uh, before I composed my sermon. They, it was usually on a Thursday night, and they would read all of the commentaries that I was reading, and that was quite a commitment. 
the day that I did, when I did the study of John, that amounted to about 1,100 pages of commentaries. And they read it, and then we came and discussed it. And the, the time we would discuss the technical aspects of it in the first 15 or 20 minutes, and we would spend the next hour talking about what it meant to us, what that passage meant to us, and what we had learned from it, what our life experience brings to it, and we would talk with each other, and there would be some times when it was so clear that the Holy Spirit had been present with us, and that connection that we had was way more than just a moment of friendliness, but it was a meeting of spirits, and it was powerful. And I feel like that's what these disciples enjoyed on the road to Emmaus. And, and we can all identify with this. And part of the reason we can identify with this story so well is uh, the first attraction of this story comes from what we don't know about it. We know almost nothing about the identity of the men who were walking on the road. Back in verse 9, we read uh, about the women coming back to tell that they had seen that Jesus wasn't in the tomb, and this didn't get read this morning, but, uh, and they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11, so it was the 12 disciples minus Judas, to the 11 and to all the rest. So these two men came from either the 11 or all the rest. Now, had one of the 11 been present on the road to Emmaus, they almost certainly would have been named. But the only person whose name is a guy named Cleopas. And that doesn't help much, because his name is mentioned nowhere else in the whole Bible. His name is itself a contraction of the word Cleopatras. Okay, maybe it's what Cleopatra came from. I don't know. Didn't have time to look that up. But it's a contraction of the word Cleopatras. Patros, which means from a renowned or from a famous father. So the only name we're given is a name that tells us more about the father of the guy who has it than it does about him. So these two men really represent all of us who count ourselves among all the rest. Further, Bible scholars are unable to determine where Emmaus is. All we know is that Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. That would be like walking the highway from Lakeview Dairy up on the hill up here down to downtown Grand Marais. Like so many villages in the ancient Near East, this one has disappeared from every map and from every memory except for Luke's. As with the unknown men, this unknown destination also makes it easier for us to identify with the story. Like these two men, we spend a great deal of time trying to get somewhere. Maybe we're building a family, building a home, building a business. Maybe we've got a project we're trying to do. We've got purposes every day, big purposes and little purposes. We're all on the road to Emmaus, to somewhere to get something done. We often end up going places with our lives that, like Emmaus, will leave no real mark in time, let alone eternity. 
what we do know is that they weren't just passing time as they walked. They were discussing and exploring with common concern the events that had happened on that Easter weekend. Jesus had died, and now the grave was empty, the tomb was empty, and angels had told the women that he, had, he was risen and alive. And they were wondering, what does this mean? How is this possible? They were trying to figure out what just happened. Now, the Old Testament, the Bible tells us, as far back as the Old Testament, that where two or more are gathered, I'm in their midst. There were two of these guys walking along the road, and what do you know? It turns out to be more literally true than they expected. So let's read verses 15 and 16 again. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. When we talk to one another about God, we're not just gossiping about an absent party. He is present. And remembering that God is present when we're talking about God may help us keep a listening ear for what his spirit might say about our thoughts. If we have questions, if we've made observations, if we're aware that God is among us and expect that perhaps he will answer or give shed light and either affirm or modify or rebuke what we've thought, that might be helpful. We might learn something new. Jesus wasn't recognized by these two men because, as Paul would later remark, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Something, Jesus wasn't recognized by a lot of people, in part because they didn't expect him to be alive. That would skew things significantly. But we're also told there must have been something in his appearance that was same and yet different. Because there was always this reaction. They didn't notice that it was him to begin with, and then it was, it is you. And they could see the connection. We know, what we know about God from his word and from his spirit, if he has told us in his word and from his spirit, then it's accurate, if indeed it is from his word and his spirit. But if it is always accurate, when it concerns God, it's always incomplete. Why? Because God is so much bigger than we are. There is always more to learn and more to experience the two men accepted that they did not know all that they needed to know. And that's a, that's, that is a vital part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've known people who quit learning things somewhere around age 20, 21, 22. They learned everything they were going to learn in life, and they've spent the rest of their life telling us all what they know and we don't. Okay, One of the most powerful discipleship, we want to be a good disciple of Christ, then assume that there is much that you don't know. And even the things you do know, you don't know the depth of them yet. Because 
God is always going to challenge and deepen us. Pride is the first and the greatest conquest in a faithful disciple. When we are able to conquer our own pride, we've made huge steps. As the stranger turned out to be Jesus, spoke to the two men, the Holy Spirit began to reshape their theology, not discarding what they knew, because that was all true, but adding to it, completing it, deepening it, making it, as it turns out, more than just what they knew up here to what they knew and they held here. In verses 17 to 18, we're told that they stood still, looking sad. Grief and loss overcame their caution. And with this stranger, their hearts were so tender that to have another caring person join them in the group was welcome. Let's read verses 19 to 24 again. And Jesus said to them, what things? What things have you, are you talking about? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word and in the sight of God and all of the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it, would, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was exactly as the woman had said, but him they did not see. The men had hoped that Jesus would be the one, the Jesus they knew who was crucified, that they didn't know was standing in front of them, but they had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. Now, Jesus was there to redeem Israel, and it wasn't that they were wrong about it, it was just that their view of what that would mean was so small, so restrictive, that Jesus had come to do much bigger things than they ever had imagined with Israel, through Israel, and in the whole world. They had imagined only a worldly political leader of an earthly kingdom. And when our theology and our spirituality is reduced to the here and now, we're going to miss the vast majority of what God is really doing in the world and what he can do in us and through us. On top of all this, his body... His body was gone. It was all they had of the man that they love, and now that's gone too. It's vanished. Some of the women had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive, but no one had seen him. What in the world could all of this mean? And the stranger, who was Jesus, said, I'm paraphrasing here, none of this makes sense because you cannot imagine that God would suffer as part of his own purposes. For 2,000 years, we've been telling the story of Easter and about God's suffering on our behalf, and we have normalized it. We have made it almost cliched. We have no idea how earth-shattering this was to the theology in the ancient Near East, that God 
would choose to and would embrace suffering on the way to doing what he wanted to do. Once they began to see this, as, well, first of all, as puzzling as the mystery of why in the world does creation have to suffer so much, as puzzling as the mystery of creation's suffering may seem, it is less strange than the mystery of God's suffering. What human being would embrace suffering if they could easily and blamelessly avoid it? Why would God embrace it? For 2,000 years, we've been telling the story, so we sort of normalize it, and I wish that we had that ancient Near Eastern mentality so that it would come on us with shock and, and, and new again so that we would feel the wonder of it, the holiness of it. Once these two brothers in Christ accepted that the suffering of God was part of his glory and not evidence of his defeat, then their theology was big enough to see how everything worked out, how even Jesus' resurrection was not only possible but inevitable. Again, what they knew about God was true and right. They just didn't know enough about it. It needed to be expanded. And that's what Jesus was doing. And let's talk for just a second about what glory is. When we think about glory, we usually think of, uh, <clears throat> you know, lights and, and, and unbearable light and, and, uh, that, that we can't look at, like the glory of looking at the sun. Uh, we, we think of fireworks, and, 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 and it is all of these things, but I, I think that at, at, at the root what glory starts out at in God is something that we can um, identify with, something that we can understand. When a special project that we have invested all of our imagination, all of our resources, a project that has required us to make sacrifices, that has cost us something, maybe even cost us pain, if it's a relationship, it often does. If you're building a family, it hurts, and there's sorrow involved in that. There's loss, there's giving and taking. But when it all comes together, you're all in. You, there is nothing that you have left on the table. It's all been invested in that project. And when that project turns out the way we wanted it to, and everything works and everything comes together, we say, yes, that's it. And that's where God's glory starts. He looks at creation and what he's done. He's invested everything in it. He's given everything. He has even decided to give suffering. He's going to give, invest all of his passions in his creation. And when it all comes together in Jesus Christ, God says, yes. That's what I was thinking of. And it explodes, because when God does it, it's just, it's, it's panoramic. It's, it's bigger than anything, any project that we could do. But that's, God shares his glory. When God, when it all comes together for God, and he, that's when he is glorified, and it all came together, and it all comes together in Jesus Christ. And for, for Jesus, in this moment, the suffering of God 
It was part of God's glory. It was part of everything. He was putting everything in it. Nothing was left, left out. It, all of the reserves were emptied, and he put it into this project. And it was part of his glory and not evidence of his defeat. Resurrection would not have been victorious if the suffering itself was a defeat. If Jesus was resurrected, but he deemed the suffering to be a defeat as something that he didn't choose, something he didn't embrace, then his resurrection would have been no more helpful than Lazarus's resurrection. Poor guy had to be raised up to get all that goo off him, all the bandages. Then he had to go through the whole thing again and die again. There wasn't the victory there. There wasn't the glory there that there was in Christ. And the reason was that Jesus, that God chose suffering and he chose death. He wasn't a victim in any of it. He pulled it all into himself and remade it. And when the resurrection happened, it consumed death. It consumed sorrow. It didn't spit it out. It took it in, metabolized it, and made it good. That's God's glory. Amen. Understanding it, the, the scripture used, or the, the stranger used scripture to reveal that as far back as Moses, there was evidence that God had always intended to subject himself to the fate of his own creation in order to save it, in order to rescue all of us. He chose suffering like he chose death. He wasn't a victim in any of it. This was an important theological leap for these two men. It made the recent events that they had experienced in the last few days less chaotic. It also became for them a theology that would give strength and courage and peace to them for whatever their future would hold. The God whose glory it is to suffer for the sake of his love is not a God whose primary interest is in his own ease and comfort or in ours. Now this, this is the, the base root of the problem of the, the prosperity gospel is that it has so little place for suffering. And yet God embraced it on the way to consuming it, metabolizing it, and making it something good. I, I, and I don't, want to, I don't want to make it sound like we rejoice in suffering and that suffering is good. Suffering is evil. Want, sorrow and loss, death is evil. And, and we experience it that way. And there's no point in pretending that it's all just fun and games or that it doesn't matter because it does matter. What's important is to remember that it's what we're feeling about it here and now and how we experience it, just like Jesus in Gethsemane as he was dreading death, that that's not the end of it. There's more to the story. And in the end, even an evil as despicable and as cruel and as obscene as death will be taken into God and resurrected. Resurrected in something new and glorious. And if we're part of that, then death 
all the misery and the sorrow will be sucked out of it. And I believe that that will be retroactive. I don't think we'll forget it. I think that we'll understand its part. But we'll see. God's glory. I mean, we've talked about it. I said that it's that moment where God says, yes, it's all coming together, where he experiences everything he he worked out ahead of time and planned, and it all comes together, and it is good. Just like he said about creation, it is good. God's glory is also a crashing, flashing drama because God doesn't do anything on a small scale like he does. Everything he does is the cosmos. When God creates, you've seen those new pictures from the latest telescope in space? It's unbelievable. It's all out there, and it's always been out there. We haven't seen it, but we're seeing it now. It's all part of God's glory. God's glory is a crashing, flashing drama. The universe is full of explosions and implosions and collisions and new beginnings. And that's just the surface of things. That's what just we see in the visible atoms and and material that's out there. We don't even see the spiritual world and, and what that's all about. God's peace that passes understanding springs from the theological awareness, the big picture thinking that God is sovereign, even in the midst of apparent chaos and calamity, even in the midst of our experience of evil as evil, as evil that brings us loss and sorrow. God is still sovereign, which means that what we're feeling isn't the last thing. It isn't the, most great, the greatest thing in our life. Not if we're trusting in God. God is never caught unawares by the evil of his creation. When he or his loved ones suffer, it is because he allows it because for those who trust in him, he will turn suffering. He will spiritually metabolize it into joy, and he will take death and turn it into life. Let's read verses 28 to 29. And they approached the village where they were going, and Jesus acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. I think it's just so great that God permits his creatures to show him hospitality. I mean, it's just, that's, that's remarkable. I mean, the fact, and I, we say this, uh, every time we do the responsive reading that is the Te Deum uh, Laudamus, and, and Deb divided, our uh, ministry coordinator divided that out so that I'm the one that says the part, he did not spurn the virgin's womb, you know, because you just hear all the kids twittering and nudging each other. But the fact that God became, it inhabited a woman's body, was carried by her, became born, all of that subjecting himself to letting us take care of him. What's that all about? He he was vulnerable and he relied on them to take him to Egypt to keep him safe. Here God breaks bread with his own creatures. He, he desires and rejoices and is not in the least way condescending, but he breaks bread 
with his creatures. They were as hungry for his companionship as they were for his dinner, and we are that hungry for God's companionship. So they prevailed on him to stay, and nowhere is the image of God and humankind more perceptible than in true fellowship. The sharing of hearts between friends, even new ones. All acts of hospitality, true fellowship, and love for God's sake, even to strangers, are acts that point us to our origins in God, and they help us find ourselves. Verses 30 to 32. When he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. When I read, read this again this week, I longed for the experience that the disciples had. Yet in all that happened on that road and around that table in Emmaus, we witness the way God continues to encounter his people, the church, even to this day. When the community of faith, we fellowship, within the community of faith, we fellowship with God and catch a glimpse of his resurrected self when we search the scriptures to hear God's voice, not to just read ourselves back into it, not to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, but to hear and to find God again, believing that we still have much to learn, even about the things that we already know. We catch a glimpse of his resurrected self when we meet together in twos or more, reflecting on what we have experienced and asking questions about what puzzles, uh, what puzzles us and even disappoints us. And we catch a glimpse of his resurrected self when we realize that God is present in that fellowship and we recognize that by prayerfully including God's spirit in the discussion. And the more intentional you are about that, the more intentional we are about that, the more we'll get out of it. When we pray, when I pray, that God's spirit would be present before a Sunday school class that I'm teaching, it is because I really want it. It's not just a way to, you know, opening exercises, to get everybody quiet and focused. I really do want us, myself and all of the rest of us to be aware that the real teacher in the room is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And more will be done if we're willing to, if we're, if we're listening for that and expecting that. The whole Christian education program in this church is aimed, and what Gail and I have tried to do for 15 years, our passion is that you all understand what the Bible says. We want to disciple each other in age-appropriate ways to hear God's voice, not just justify our own. To understand enough about God's unimaginable glory, to be a part of it, so that when God says yes, we could say yes too. We could feel what He feels. We could know what He something of what He knows. 
to understand enough about God's unimaginable glory that we find peace in trusting him with all of history, human history and our own history. We want to learn enough about God's will and purpose that we know how to listen for his spirit's direction in our life. It's easier to know what the specifics for our life might be if we know the big picture of what God is doing in general in all of creation. When God reveals himself in his world, in his word, faithful but bewildered disciples, sad hearts are fired with hope and joy so that they burn within us. It still happens. It's happened here. I've experienced it. Our emphasis on fellowship and love for one another is meant to awaken our awareness of God's presence among us. And I've seen it happen here when you get together at the close of the service and you talk with each other. And I would encourage you, some of you got this down really well, and, and, and I just I, I admire how when someone tells you something about their life and they invest their time and their passion in enough to tell you how it's really felt and where they really are, that you have the presence of mind to say, let's pray about that. Let's pray about that. Let's, let's realize that God is present here between us and put this in his hands and see what he does with it. The sooner you recognize that God's part of your life and that God is part of everything and can be part of everything, the sooner good things can happen, even in the midst of bad things. When our talk gets around to the important events of our lives and the mighty works of God, when we search, our, search in earnest together to be faithful in life's journey, Jesus is in our midst. If we raise our expectations and honor his presence with prayer and a mindful ear that is listening for insight from his spirit, then like those two men on the way to Emmaus, we will have reason to remark how good it is that God has chosen to be present with us. On the other hand, if we're too busy to spend time learning his word together, or too busy to sit with one another and the Lord in the joy of our bond of faith, then we're too darn busy. We're too busy to recognize the presence of Jesus Christ. We're too busy to have our hearts ignited by his love. We're too busy to have our minds renewed by the power, and the, the, the power of his glory is the joy of his glory. It, it, it gobsmacks us because it is so, it, it, it's the volume is turned up and the colors are so broad and it's, 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 it's the whole world when God is glorified. But at the center of all of it is joy, God's joy that he shares with us, his glory he shares with us. And if we're too busy, we're too busy to have our minds renewed by the joy of his glory. If we become that busy and that caught up in our dusty journeys, we won't meet Jesus. We'll only reach Emmaus, a town that nobody even knows where it is anymore. 
With that in mind, I want to ask, I, I, I'm telling you, I want to tell you a couple of things that the elders would, would like to share with you. And this is meant to help all of us. And it's not so terrible as it's sounding like. I'm doing it now at the end of the sermon because if I did it at the beginning of the service where I would probably more likely do it, 20% of you would never hear it. COVID, well, COVID sucked in a big way. And it broke us of a lot of really good habits. And one of the habits that we would come a long way on in the, the years that Gail and I have been here was coming to church on time. Now, well, some cultures, being on time doesn't mean anything. Yeah, well, we're not some cultures. This is this culture. And if a customer or a professional in our life is consistently late, if a friend consistently is late in everything they do, it communicates to you, not that they hate you, but that they don't respect you enough to put you on a priority list. It communicates, it, it sets our whole being up for how we're approaching the rest of the worship service if we are intentional, and it's so important to be intentional in worship. If we're intentional enough to, if we're finding that week after week we're 15 minutes late, and we go to the alarm clock and we turn the little knob or click the little button until it wakes us up 15 minutes earlier next week. You can do it. I know you can. And it's a big deal. It means a lot in your relationship and how you present yourself to God to be intentional about worship. I'm intentional because I'm on and, and I will be really embarrassed if I screw up because I don't have my mind in the right place. I'm, I'm careful about what I watch or if I even watch television. I'm careful about how I spend my whole evening I, the night before so that I'm prepared for worship. Work hard at being here at 10.30. And it, the church will be open. We, uh, sometimes there are people here an hour afterwards to talk with your friends. So please make an effort in the following weeks to be here at the worship service a little before 10.30 so you could be seated. And the other thing is, if you could keep the levels of, if you could keep your voices low and quiet when you come into the sanctuary, it, again, it's all about being intentional. And, and, I, and the, I, I hesitate to say this, honestly, because I'm back and forth on it. I know that fellowship is important and it is a good thing. And I know that it is a sacrifice of fellowship to come in and be quiet before God, even if it's just a few minutes before worship. But you know, that's telling God, and, and God doesn't need to know this because he's God and he knows he's God, all right? He's very secure in himself. All right, and it does. It doesn't. He doesn't go into fits of depression because we don't treat him like God. But it's important for us to know that he is God, and when we come into the sanctuary, to just keep the noise to a point where you maybe think about whispering instead of talking. Think about seeing somebody after the service instead of during. All right, I've said it. That's it. Uh, 
Worship is, everything about worship is intentionality. Our intention to meet with God, our intention to be honest before him, to find things out about him and about ourselves that we didn't know to look for, but we have to be looking. We have to open the doors and the windows of our heart. So in these two areas, if you would uh, pay a little extra attention, we'll get back on track again. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your presence here. I thank you that your spirit never tires of reaching out to our spirit. I thank you, Lord God, that I thank you that even though we don't know it, that one of the greatest acts of worship is to dare to be bored. And the older I get, the more I realize that no spiritual growth happens, no insight comes without the boredom of focusing our attention, of putting away the things that distract us. So I pray, Lord God, that you would bless our boredom. It is a search for you, and help us to realize that it's a search for you, that we're listening for your voice, that we might hear your spirit. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.